0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, if we know Mikhail Golenyshev Kutuzov, we know him as Tolstoy imagined him, an old man before Austerlitz with his uniform unbuttoned so that his fat neck bulged over his collar as if escaping, in a low chair with his podgy old hands resting asymmetrically on its arms, who begins to snore loudly and rhythmically as his generals plan the battle. Why? Because there, and at Borodino as well, he alone understands the hand of providence or the finger of fate. He alone recognizes that there are forces in the universe that are stronger and more important than his own will. Tolstoy's Kutuzov decides not to decide diminishes himself in order to triumph realizes that he is an observer rather than pretending to be an actor but who is Kutuzov really and how can we know him those are the questions at the heart of Alexander Mikaberidze's new biography Kutuzov a life in war and peace it is concerned it is as concerned with Russia in the late 18th century and with what subsequently was made of Kutuzov's legacy to this very moment that we record this conversation as Alex is in Kutuzov's Life Story. Alexander Mikabrija is professor of European history at the Louisiana State University at Shreveport, where he is also Ruth Herring Knoll Endowed Chair for the curatorship of the James Smith Knoll Collection, and this is the longest title that I ever read on the podcast. This is his fourth appearance on Historically Thinking. Alex, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Always a a pleasure and a a privilege to be here.
0: Yeah, one more and I owe you a coffee mug.
1: (laughs) I, that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward
0: to it. <laughs> well, I look forward to actually uh, having to make one. I'll have an intern. I'll have an intern paint one or something like that <laughs> with their own blood. So uh, let's uh, begin. Uh, Kutuzov, uh, what are his dates uh, for the English speaker who knows if they're really good? They've read War and Peace. Uh, but they, he's extraordinarily ancient, as Tolstoy portrays him. Uh, yes. uh, he's like almost ageless by this time <laughs> uh, in in War and Peace. So, what are what are Kutuzov's dates, and why are that we're going to see that the context is? I mean, you're a historian writing a biography, so context is all important. Um, what are his dates, and what's the context in which he was born?
1: Um, that's that's a great question, kind of to to dive into this because one of the things we And uh, you can discover about Kutuzov is that there are still a lot of debate about him Mm. and Mm. even about the date of his birth. Uh,
0: (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good story, right?
1: Uh, um, If you travel to um, Russia, uh, if if you go to St. Petersburg, to the great uh, and imposing Kazan Cathedral, uh, the cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan, where he's buried... um, the date on his tombstone is 1745, but as um, I've discovered and as some of my Russian colleagues have, have shown, that date is wrong. Um, and that he was born two years later, actually, in 1747. So that's the starting point for him. Um, he was born on uh, on an important holiday, or at least a religious holiday, uh, celebrating St. Saint, Saint Michael, and that's why he was called Mikhail or, or Michael. Uh, and, of course, he lives what, at the time, would have been considered a long life. Um, he, he dies at the age of 60, what uh, 65, um, almost 66. But, of course, from a present-day perspective, Tolstoy's vision of him is that ancient man right yeah. at the age of 65 uh, I, I'm sure many will take quibble with that
0: <laughs> yeah don't, don't
1: but he had a turbulent life he had a life full of uh, I think he spent most of his life literally in the field in the campaign uh, campaigning and that could not but take toll on his body
0: so I, I, I he's I, I without without knowing anything you would know immediately that he must have been born into the nobility. Is he born into the what sort of? I, and I also I know very little about this, but I I I, I know that Russian nobility has a very intricate gradations, uh, just like as in Austria Hungary. So what level of nobility are the Kutuzovs, and how does that how does that set him up or disadvantage him?
1: Oh, he's he, he's born into a, a privileged family, um, but as you mentioned, in this kind of overall hierarchy. Uh, his family would have been more of a middling status. Um, although, um, as I said, uh, family is quite ancient, we can trace uh, the family lineage uh, all the way back to um, 13th century when uh, uh, a certain man um, uh, migrated from what, is, what was back then uh, Prussia, uh, you know, what is today Germany, hmm. uh, to, to Russia. Now, back then, in the 13th century, of course, Prussia didn't exist. neither did Germany, but what existed is this kind of frontier land, uh, full of uh, different tribes, uh, and they were on the receiving end of this uh, of the Northern Crusades uh, uh, waged by the uh, the the uh, the great religious orders like Teutonic Knights. And fleeing the onslaught of these knights, many of the uh, of the local inhabitants uh, fled, uh, kind of went. East, including this uh, gentleman, uh, we, we we have his name at least recorded as Gatusha, uh, who came uh, to to northern Slavic lands, um, adopted Orthodox Christianity, changed his name to Gabriel or Gavriel, hmm. settled, and then laid the foundation to, to what became the Kutuzov family. Now, of course, uh, back then, he didn't have the... Neither he nor first two generations of his children have last name, since it was not an accepted practice. But later on, by the time we get to the fourteenth 14th, late 14th, 15th century, uh, his descendants acquired a family which was derived from a nickname. And here we again get into another kind of quibble about, uh, in disagreement, most Russian historians argued that uh, one of um, Kutuzov's great, great, great ancestors was nicknamed after a pudgy, kind of soft pillow full of, kind of covered with lace, uh, which was uh, uh, later on uh, recorded as as being called Kutuz. But I find that a bit suspicious. Uh, uh, And my argument is that I think it is more probable that that gentleman was nicknamed Kutuz for his hot-tempered character. Because in the Turkish language, which would have been present in in what is today Russia back then because of the Mongol conquest, uh, Kutuz is indeed refers to this fiery hot So I, I think that's more probable. And so that Kutuz then um, became a, a kind of a moniker for the whole family, uh, giving us the last name of Kutuzov.
0: So the Kutuzovs, uh, where's where their estate located? where's where's their the basis of their wealth located?
1: The family uh, split into two main kind of uh, branches, and then each branch subdivided. One uh, settled in Moscow. The other one stayed um, in the north, around Pskov. Uh, uh, now it, Pskov is a small town. But back then, it was an important uh, um, commercial hub, a part of the Novgorod's Great Republic. Uh, and that's where Kutuzov, the you know our our Kutuzov's ancestors settled. And by the time we get to the 18th century, they are actually uh, owning substantive of uh, uh, substantial estates. Um, uh, it, Russia at this time, you you were asking about kind of what kind of society he was born? Uh, well, it, it is a society that is highly hierarchical uh, uh, based absolutely on privilege, and on the institution of serfdom, which was codified into law in 1649. And by that law, effectively, common people were inserved, and and the status of of serfdom was passed from generation to generation. And so nobles owned land and the people who lived on it. And in the case of Kutuzov, his grandfather and his father owned about 600 uh, souls, and here, if you are interested in kind of classic literature, um, I think many of your listeners would have uh, would have read the 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 great uh, the great works, uh, uh, you know, the great novel of uh, the Dead Souls, uh, which uh, describes this process of, of ownership, right, or the or the loophole that Russian legislation kind of left where. Uh, The standing of the Russian nobleman was determined by how many uh, serfs he owned. But what happened is that uh, the number of serfs would be evaluated in censuses, which were conducted every so many years. But what happens to those serfs who died in between the the censuses? They still own the books, but they're actually dead. And, of course, the great uh, Ukrainian slash Russian. Right? <laughs> I'm going to get into trouble here. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll, we'll go with Ukrainian writer uh, Gogol, right, Nikolai? Uh, Gogol writes this remarkable satire about people, oh, in this case, his main character, protagonist, going and buying those dead souls. Mm-hmm. But I like this Gogolian vision of of, of, of the importance uh, kind of, of buying these souls because what he talks here about is, is ownership of human beings. Uh, and the in the, Ru- in, in the Russian legislation, on, in censuses, they only counted males, males as, as souls. And so when we talk about, for example, Kutuzov's father owning some 600 souls, this is males, some of them, of course, would have been married, some of them would have had children. So the number is kind of misleading because it's not just 600. It would have been uh, probably t- double that number if we count, if we consider how large serf families tended to be. And then later on, of course, in his life, Kutuzov will build upon this legacy. He will be a great beneficiary of the uh, Russian imperial expansion into Poland, the destruction of the Polish state, uh, because as part of that, uh, Russian Empress Catherine was rewarding her, her loyal generals with uh, the Polish... Estates that were confiscated from the rebel, right? <laughs> uh, um, um, uh, uh, the rebel poles uh, and given to the loyal Russians. And ultimately Kutuzov will have what I, I think, my estimate is about fifteen thousand serfs. Good grief! Um, so it would have, he would have been one of the larger uh, 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 landowner and serf owner in Russia.
0: So in a way, his entire trajectory is we can we can. See the trajectory of his career by the number of people that are are basically enslaved and serfed, whatever wish to, whatever term we used to wish to use.
1: Yes, absolutely. In, and what I find particularly interesting, and, and anyone reading the book, I think, will will find it also kind of repetitive, is that despite being this a uh, 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 large landowner, despite owning so many serfs, the perennial problem Kutuzov faces is that of money. Mm-hmm. It's a red kind of thread through his life. Constant search for more money because his family can't keep up with expenses. Right, and so,
0: because because as we'll see, the jobs in which he uh, exists require tremendous personal expenditure on behalf <laughs> of, on behalf of the imperial uh, crown. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I was just thinking as you were talking the connection between slavery and warfare throughout human history. Um, It helps to be a citizen hoplite in Athens to have slaves. It helps Mm -hmm. to be a citizen soldier in Rome to have slaves. It helps the Confederacy has the most effective draft in modern history because of slaves. Um, It helps... Kutuzov can go off to war, can go to military academy, can do all those things because of slaves, because of slavery. Um, This is how the Russian aristocracy can spend its time engaged in warfare.
1: The downside to it is that uh, because Kutuzov has gone so so long from his estates, mm-hmm. uh, when he actually visits them, he realized how mismanaged they are
0: right.
1: and how inefficient the system is and he tried. so at no point and I, I need I think to emphasize at no point does he consider emancipating serfs. so I think he's a, a byproduct of his you know cultural milieu with all the uh, you know worldview attached to it. so he is convinced serfdom is is the way to go. But what he wants is find a way to kind of modernize, mm-hmm. I'll be using this rather loosely, the the um, agricultural estates that he he owns. So he he experiments with different means of uh, uh, you know methods of of agricultural uh, production. He tries to set up uh, different manufacturing. Yeah, it, it- uh, he actually helps those serfs that he you know that the work his land. He helps them by providing them with with Means uh, with tools or, or some funding, but it's all it's it's always a climbing up up a very steep hill.
0: It's weirdly similar to Washington, I thought as I read the book, um, and I think the difference is is that Kutuzov is a soldier first and foremost, and you know his uh, recent excellent book on Washington um, and agriculture makes clear Washington was a farmer first and foremost, and in the end, slavery went against his commitment to enlightenment farming, um, mm-hmm. but. Kutuzov is an enlightenment soldier. So let's talk about let's talk about the military enlightenment. Um, he goes off. When does he go off to uh, join the army? He must have been very young.
1: His father was a very uh, accomplished uh, engineer mm-hmm. uh, uh, who was involved in in major you know, military projects uh, in, in, in mid eighteenth century. And I think by that. Um, uh, by that token, Kutuzov had no choice, <laughs> right? He was destined for military, uh, and uh, his father wanted him to um, to receive military education, which is why he managed to uh, get him into a very good uh, artillery engineer school.
0: So he's, uh, he's uh, not uh, a cavalryman; he's a he's a thinking soldier from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, and, and there we see kind of the uh, the parallel, maybe to the guy, and your listeners can see it, but he stands right behind mm-hmm. me <laughs> to Napoleon. Yeah.
0: Right. I said only Alexander would have a cutout of Napoleon Bonaparte, life-size.
1: <laughs> well, uh, that's a gift from students, and I can't simply <laughs> get rid of it. Well, the,
0: the, the David portrait in the National that's Gallery of right. Washington, I think,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's a good conversation starter. Very let good. me put it this way. Very, very, very uh, and so like Napoleon, uh, he he goes into a, 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 a Artillery Engineer School, uh, and what I love about and kind of touching about the Enlightenment, uh, military Enlightenment is that his father um, understood the importance of education, and and uh, you know he, the, his father's nickname was Wise Book because of his uh, wide ranging knowledge, and early on he tried to pass it on to his to his son. So and I think here you also kind of find. A parallel, for example, to another a distinguished Russian general, Alexander Suvorov, uh, who, of course, will be the great generalissimo later on. But his father, all, you know, when Suvorov was young uh, and, and sickly, right, child, he, you know, his father helped him gain that education. And the fact that his father had a massive library also helped. And uh, Kutuzov also is beneficiary of it. So that by the time he gets to actually military school, He's so good at, at at certain subjects that the school even though he's only 12 years old the school asks him can you actually help us teach the younger cadets so by 13 he's actually kind of the assistant instructor uh and 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 and, and already feels that kind of responsibility uh, he finishes school uh, in Uh, In couple of years, uh, and is off to the to military service. But there again, he is a privileged privileged standing because he's not going to the artillery, kind of like a rank and file. Yeah, is
0: Russia um, unusual in having military academies like this?
1: Uh, No, this is part of the I think broader military enlightenment or professionalization of the military. Uh, You see academies established, of course, in Vienna, in Paris. uh, military, great military schools in, in Berlin uh, and of course in, in, in Russia as well. The in, in case of Russian military enlightenment, like many other things, it all goes back to Peter the Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter understands uh, that in order to modernize Russian military, he needs educational facilities. And so he starts establishing schools, brings foreign teachers, instructors, uh, starts translating foreign books, and by the time we get to seventeen uh, uh, fifty, so Kutuzov uh, is accepted into school uh, in, in late fifties, uh, we already see the kind of the beginning of kind of purely Russian military enlightenment. In that they are not no longer reliant on on foreign instructors, but rather there is already a generation of talented Russian thinkers, Russian writers, Russian specialists who are thinking, how can we contribute to it? And here we. I, I, I think we can talk about people like Ivan Bitskoy, who is a, a giant in terms of uh, educational reforms in, in Russia. He, he talks, you know, he envisions education as a process of creating what he calls, quote, new type of people. And new type, this new new people will be well-rounded. This will be people uh, raised on, on the Enlightenment ideals. Uh, you know rational skeptical inquiry uh, people who will uh, will not be just specializing in just one area but will have broad uh, range of skill sets and Kutuzov is beneficiary of it but well, you know, if you look at, at, at the type of education he receives, it is military. I mean he he studies fortification, he studies military art, but alongside of it there is a lot of humanities mm-hmm. involved languages. He's proficient in German, he's proficient in Latin uh, and later on in French and later on, he will acquire a little bit of Swedish, a a whole lot of Turkish. So he's he was a polyglot in that.
0: So the Russia is very far from being a backwater and and, and in many ways, it's a sort of a leader in this in this drive towards uh, military education.
1: Yes, and there is a wonderful book by by a, a, a great colleague of mine Eugene Makinkov um, on Russian military enlightenment where he shows uh, both the strength and the weaknesses of, of the system mm-hmm. uh, f- uh, one of the weakness for example, and that's the that's the problem that Kutuzov himself will confront because in later years when he's already a general and accomplished general, he will be actually giving a role of uh, leading one of the most important Uh, uh, military educational institutions in Russia, the the, the great cadet corps. And he faces that uh, problem uh, uh, up front. And the problem is, how do you create this new type of people, right, what Betskoy wants? Well, for Betskoy and his successors, this was to create an isolated environment in which you kind of introduce cadets to, to theory, to history, to morality, to ethics, to philosophy, but they did it in, in, in essentially in, in isolation from the real world, in almost literal isolation, because these cadets were not allowed to leave the school grounds and kinda of were raised in, in this environment. And what happened is that by the time we get to seventeen seventies, seventeen eighties, these new generation of cadets who are coming out of these military schools are entirely unprepared for the harsh reality of combat. Um there's a wonderful letter I found from an eminent Russian diplomat who, uh, when he's commenting uh, Kutuzov's appointment to lead the cadet corps, says that, yes, our officers are, you know, they can recite Voltaire and Rousseau and they can write playwrights, but they can't lead the battalions. So what's the point, right, (laughs) of spending this much money training them? And that's where Kutuzov comes in and kind of Plays an important role in, in Russian military enlightenment by f- trying to find a balance between that aspiration to create well rounded citizens, well, subjects. Mm-hmm. Let me take the citizen back.
0: Subject leaders. Uh, I mean, uh-huh. subject leaders. But
1: also mil- good military leaders. Yeah. That's right. So this is going to, and, and what he, tr- he I think he he manages to do that by giving the cadets well rounded education. He himself teaches. Uh, courses on history of uh, military art, and uh, military history, of recent military history of Russian Empire. Uh, and it certainly draws on his own experiences. But he also is very keen on hands-on practical uh, te- uh, experiences for the cadets. So for the first time, these cadets are taken outside the school uh, grounds to camping experiences. They're taught how to set up tents, how to maneuver. He, uh, I, I love the part where Kutuzov actually buys Uh, kind of replica of grenades that that can be disassembled, shown what's inside, reassembled, and then they're practicing throwing them. Uh, And and, and that's hands-on. Education, I think, is is very important overall, right? We know how crucial it is uh, to have that individualized attention and emphasis on practical application.
0: So it's important that they have that because Russia is... Even if not in openly declared war, it seems to me that half of Kutuzov's life is spent in a state of semi-war.
1: <laughs> yes, high, are, yeah. maybe gray. It's a
0: gray war. It, it, yeah, that it wasn't just invented um, no. against the Ottoman Empire. Um, yeah. So they're 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 in a continual sense. Uh, they are. And,
1: and, and let's let's give the credit to the poles too. Yeah, yeah, Ottoman absolutely. and poles. That's a common threat in in. In Kutuzov's life, yeah. uh, and you're right in that. Actually, I was, uh, as I, for the fun of it, I was tracking how much time he actually spent with his wife, and it's <laughs> very little. They get married in late 1770s, and uh, they do have uh, kids every time Kutuzov comes back home, <laughs> but but it's not too often. Yeah, uh, uh, he he's participated in the Russo-Polish Wars in 1760s. He participated in the Russo-Ottoman Wars in the 1770s, 1790s. Uh, then again, uh, the events in Poland in the in mid-1790s. Uh, then he serves again in, in, in Finland, kind of watching the border against Sweden. And then he's back to fighting Turks. Then, of course, goes to fight Napoleon, only to be sent to fight of Turks again. Huh. So he's always in the field fighting or in a garrison service uh, and and that is the most defining element in his life that everything about him is 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 military related so he has very little i think time when he's not in the army, even when he is governor general of Lithuania, his primary task is to provide uh, wherewithal material and and, and human uh, for the war efforts. Mm-hmm.
0: So what's warfare like with the Ottomans? I mean, it, how does Russian military culture develop in the 18th century to basically be a tool for either fighting the Ottomans or suppressing the Poles? I mean, it, it's a certain kind of army is created by that experience, yes?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think I have a um, one of my favorite chapters in, in this book is the chapter in which I'm uh, discussing the – Kind of influences Kutuzov had at a young age from two distinguished generals. One is Alexander Suvorov, and the other one is Peter Remensov. Suvorov, of course, is more famous, especially in the West. I think we can, you know, envision Russian 18th-century warfare as you know, Suvorov. But Remensov, to me, is, is no less interesting. Uh, uh, um, unfortunately, he's not as well known, and there is still no good biography of him. Uh, but but he's well deserving of it. Um, because both Suvorov and Romancev understood uh, what needs to be done or what type of army needs to be developed to fight the much larger, numerically much larger Ottoman armies, but uh, armies that were not as disciplined, not as well organized as as the Western European armies, and the Russians certainly were part of that Western European dimension. And so what we see is Suvorov and Romancev are experimenting uh, uh, various approaches, and including uh, the most effective one being the so-called moving redoubts approach, where whenever they encounter an Ottoman army, which was predominantly cavalry-based army, um, um, uh, the, what Rumenzo would do is he would organize in checkered formation these large squares that will be constantly on the move, but within support distance of each other, and he used them to a uh, devastating effect in battles like at Larga, at Kagul in the 1770s. And of course, later on, Suvorov uses the same approach with even greater de- uh, efficiency at Fokshani and Rimnik. And the Ottomans f- uh, struggled to find a, uh, a response to this combination of rigid discipline that the Russian army possesses and the f- uh, uh, very flexible efficient tactical approach uh, that utilizes combined arms those squares have of course infantry but they have artillery and support with cavalry in between so uh, uh, it, it's a very fascinating approach and kutuzov is exposed to this early on uh, and he he learns by by participating he learns by observing uh, but he also like many russian officers uh, he's taught to lead from the front and he does so uh, uh, throughout his life and pays a dear price for it, right? He, yeah. he infamously gets shot two and a half times in, <laughs> in the head and survives. <laughs>
0: yeah, I thought uh, Dan Morgan was uh, was lucky escaping a musket ball through his neck and face. But uh, Kutuzov does him even better, I think. Um, although I still, I still don't, I mean, in both cases, I'm not sure how... One ball avoided the jugular vein, and the other avoided the. Well, tell tell how Kutuzov was was wounded. I
1: mean, it's really stunning, especially the first injury yeah. is absolutely uh, stunning because he's uh, this is the fighting in the Crimea. Uh, in 1774. The, the you know for those who are familiar with American history and especially for me in Louisiana, right? The Battle of New Orleans, we know the battle happened while the negotiations were already done in Ghent, right? Mm -hmm. But the news haven't arrived yet. And here too, this peace treaty being already signed signed between Russia and Ottoman Empire, but the news hasn't arrived. And so there is a fighting in Crimea. And Kutuzov is leading a charge across the battlefield. And the story goes that he climbed a, a, a boulder to rally his men and kind of looked back uh, to kind of call his man to charge. And as he looked back, this Ottoman bullet uh, struck his left temple, uh, punched out a nice-sized hole, and uh, I, I looked at the, archaeological, um, uh, the reports of archaeological excavations that Ukrainians have done in the area of this battle, and most bullets that they found, musket balls, are about 18 millimeters. So it would have been a substantive hole, So this, this basketball goes through the left temple, through his skull, (laughs) and punches out a similar hole on the other side at the temple. How he didn't touch any nerve, or or any nerves, or or brain, or how he didn't suffer brain damage, it's stunning. Or that somehow he did not develop sepsis or any uh, complications, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, they thought that he he would be dead. In fact, uh, there is this famous case when Kutuzov, for, to recover, travels to Europe, goes all the way to Leiden in uh, modern-day Netherlands, and there he attends a lecture in where a local professor at the University of Leiden uh, gives a talk about how Kutuzov's injury could not have happened because <laughs> it's physically impossible. And the story goes that at the end of the lecture, Kutuzov raises his hand and says... Hey, dumbass, I'm here. <laughs> here are my injuries. <laughs> uh, and that was his, his, first in, uh, his first injury. The second one, uh, which he also gets shot in, in Crimea, is the, when he was fighting against the Turks. And I love it that because the, how it happened is that the Austrian, uh, an Austrian observer was with the Russian army, a very famous guy, Prince Deligny, who wrote fascinating memoirs. And Prince Delyaniz was looking out through him, uh, from uh, an embrasure, and he was looking at the Ottoman tourists attacking. And he called up Kutuzov and said, "Hey, check it out!" And Kutuzov looked out for a second, and just as he looked out, the bullet, uh, this basketball, uh, struck him on the uh, uh, on the left cheek, penetrated his mouth, went through his throat and the neck and exit on the other side of the skull <laughs> again yeah as you said missed juggler missed veins he didn't even lose this is the uh, fascinating is that he didn't even lose eyesight right from these injuries that famous vision we you know the v- image we have of him with an eye patch is actually soviet myth uh-huh. uh, created for, for filmmaking he could see with both eyes although the the uh, one of the eyes was a little bit uh, kind of skewed because of the muscle damage, but he could still see it. And then, of course, at uh, Austerlitz, he, you know, he has that half injury when uh, when he's uh, trying to rally an army, and one of the either musket balls or splinter shell splinters uh, strikes him on the cheek, mm. uh, on the cheek, and kind of injures him. But it more of a grazing wound.
0: Somehow, this um, it was it, it, this supposedly old fat man. Becomes a light a light infantry officer and a pioneering light infantry officer when that is the that is the thing to be in Europe. Yes. Uh, so could you describe that? I mean, this. I mean, some people are going to start falling asleep at this point, but you know, I, we have to talk about light infantry. Light infantry is really important.
1: Uh, and it's a, it's a new and exciting thing. Exactly. You can't fall asleep. <laughs> everyone was doing it, everyone was experimenting now of course, uh, you know, this is, we talk in Russian uh, um, in Russia they're referred to as which comes from the German Jaggers, it's a light infantry this is shock troops really, right, these are troops that are designed to disrupt the approaching enemy uh, battle line by targeting officers or uh, disrupting the chains of command Uh, and you know it, it was shown this its efficiency on the battlefields of Seven Years' War.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, now Kutuzov was not involved in Seven Years' War, but he understood the the importance of it. And what happens is uh, he he is tasked with organizing these light entire uh, units of light infantry. Uh, before that, there were battalions and companies incorporated with the regular infantry. But Kutuzov is tasked with organizing entire regiments um, and. He, he realizes that the, the one of the problems uh, Russian military faced was that there were no instructions, no manuals um, outlining what is light infantry, how it should be used, how it should be trained. And so he writes one. Uh, and what I find uh, fascinating in this manual is that it is an encapsulation of, mili- of, of military enlightenment. Here you see Kutuzov talking about the importance of Treating soldiers well. I know it, it's we t- take it for granted, but this is a time when soldiers are at the mercy of their officers, and in places, in many you know European armies, Prussian or Russian, uh, physical punishment is, is accepted, right, and and mistreatment is is quite tolerated. But Kutuzov flips it, and he talks about uh, treating soldiers well, providing for their needs. He uh, emphasizes the importance of individual training, and again, that kind of echo of his uh, military education is that soldiers need to be explained at their own level. And considering that this is uh, largely illiterate recruits that the Russian army was uh, uh, getting, he he kind of sets the bar low by saying soldiers need to be shown how to shoot, where to shoot, how to move. And everything needs to be easily understandable for them. Uh, one of the fascinating things he does, is, for example, he develops a special firing range mm. with moving uh, objects, where soldiers will be asked to should not volleys kind of, uh, but rather aimed, targeted fire. I thought that, and I after thought each, that was very cool. That, yeah, and after each round, right, the officers are supposed to go to each, each soldier uh-huh. and tell them, "Hey, I'll." your bullet went up, so this is how you adjust it. Or, you know, it went left, this is this is what you need to do. Uh, so, I, I, and that, that's where really Kutuzov shines, uh, both as a military officer and as a member of the military enlightenment. And I think you touched upon something that I wanted to emphasize in the book, and that is Kutuzov to me is like a jack-of-all-trades. Whenever uh, Russian military leaders needed something to be done, they would turn and say, hey, Mikhail, you're up for it. So uh, I find it really astonishing that this is a gentleman who started in artillery, went to engineer, then, or actually engineer, then artillery, then was a staff officer, then was a quartermaster officer. Then he was in charge of grenadier units, hmm. light infantry units. Then he was asked to organize light cavalry units, and then commanded other units as well so he has this diverse experience from uh, staff to quartermaster to you know, uh, auxiliary to infantry service that comes really handy when he becomes uh, an army commander
0: so what is the briefly what's the campaign that makes him famous you say it brings him to the forefront of Russian military commanders I means after that he's essential to the imperial power really for the next the next several rulers. Um, yeah. So what, what, what is that campaign and what does he do that makes him so prominent?
1: Uh, that's uh, Russo-Turkish war or Russo-Ottoman war of uh, 1787, 1791, and especially the last uh, year of the campaign is when Kutuzov really comes to be the man that we really uh, you know, see in later years. By that time, he already has th- almost 30 years of experience, um, military experience, several campaigns behind him, and uh, he shines at these decisive battles, like, for example, storming of Ismail, the great Ottoman fortress, which was taken by, the, by Suvorov in, in the fall of 1790, and Kutuzov was actually uh, instrumental in capturing it. Suvorov famously says that he was on my left flank, but he was my right hand, and appoints him as the commandant of Ismail, And it's a it's a bloody experience, and and I think you know uh, the readers of the book will be struck by the sheer savagery of fighting that was taking place at Ismail, Uh, and then after Ismail, uh, uh, several months later, Kutuzov plays a decisive role at the uh, at the Battle of Machin, which effectively shatters the Ottoman will to fight on, Uh, and there uh, he is. Kind of recognized as, as the one of the architects. He was referred to as the glorious hero of Machin, and that really elevates him to the top tier of the Russian generals um, in, to such a degree that Catherine actually chooses him to be the Russian uh, plain pl- ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. Which
0: is which fits in with um, what you were just saying about he had every job in the army at one point or other, <laughs> and then I mean this is a very important is that the coalition warfare that he's gonna fight against Napoleon, he's set up for it. He's been an ambassador. He knows he knows the drill. He knows the European he speaks French, of course they all do, but he knows the European wide diplomatic niceties that are required in order to negotiate, to, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Could you, so could you describe that experience? I mean, I, among other things, how many servants does he take with him to uh, Constantinople? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, the embassy was over 600. Yeah. So that's a lot. <laughs> to, I,
0: I, I assume that like all other ambassadors, he pays for it <laughs> all out of his own pocket.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it, it was, uh, yeah. Uh, the Russian imperial treasurer gave him uh, the breakdown of the budget, but that budget was blown right away, I think. But even before he crossed the yeah. Ottoman territory, the budget was blown. Uh, it, it's a huge uh, embassy with several hundred people that went with him uh, to the Ottoman Empire. And, and you're absolutely right is that Kutuzov, by kind of nature, by character, had that suave feel to it. And he's very... He's a very good judge of human character. He understands how to find the keys to to each each, uh, uh, individual person that he meets. And so in the Ottoman Empire, he makes great connections. He's very jovial. Actually, that's one of the things I think Tolstoy did him a disservice, is that he talks about Kutuzov as a passive, very kind of morose, maybe obtuse guy. But he was very funny. Women, I mean, of course, you know. In the book, I talk about him as a, you know, womanizer. But the women found him charming. And there is a wonderful quote in one of the memoirs, contemporary memoirs, that says that Kutuzov uh, spoke like Mozart wrote music. Right? <laughs> that he had this eloquence, this silver tonguishness that uh, contemporaries found irresistible. Huh. And and he uses this in, di- in in diplomacy. He established good relations with Ottoman viziers, with Ottoman. Officials, in fact, the commander that he encounters later on in the twilight of his career in 1811, and the command, the the Ottoman commander that he crushes, actually is the man he encountered in back in 1793 as a as one of the viziers and with whom he was chatting, and and later on when they are fighting, they actually are sending gifts to each other. Hmm. You know, the Ottoman vizier sends a, a, a plate of cit- citruses like lemons and Kutuzov uh, sends a, a give back. And so there is this personal dimension to it. But um, the importance of it is, is what you have alluded to, is, and that is when Alexander, uh, the Russian emperor, uh, uh, is faced with the task of choosing somebody to lead coalition forces in 1805 and then again in 1813, Kutuzov is a natural choice for that very reason, is that he has diplomatic experience to go along with the military experience and that he's good at smoothing over edges. Uh, and in that, he offers a contrast to Suvorov. Suvorov is a brilliant military commander, absolutely brilliant. But he is not a good diplomat. In fact, he, in, in some sense, takes joy in pissing off his superiors, right? like Prodding his Austrian uh, colleagues. Uh, the campaign of 1799 is a good example of it, because Austrians are just... Annoyed by this constant pestering and bickering with Suvor, and less so with Kutuzov. In eighteen o five, actually, they're good relations. Uh, they, you know, they have good relations with him.
0: Um, we, I, 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 the whole point of this is to sort of set things up for Borodino. So I don't want to. I, we're, we're, if it seems like we're going slow, that's on purpose. I want to figure out how did Kutuzov become Kutuzov. Kutuzov. Um, One, you've mentioned, we've mentioned Catherine, we've mentioned Alexander. Um, The Russian imperial situation was famously unstable prior to Peter the Great. And while it didn't get as bad again, um, it wasn't a period of outright anarchy. um, It really is a, it's a a bit of a, it's a questionable position being the czar of all the Russia's. Uh, you have a good chance of being assassinated in the late 18th century. So there's that. So Kutuzov, he Kutuzov, uh, he, he serves a variety of emperors. Um, and what's even worse is the court itself, uh, which is yeah. a vile, is based on the moss Eisley of, of, the 18th, of the 18th century <laughs> The wretched hive of scum and villainy, as Obi-Wan Kenobi says.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, there is this uh, I cite in the book—the famous expression uh, that uh, Russian monarchy was autocracy tempered by assassination. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so good. Yeah. Um, we do have uh, almost periodical coups in the eighteenth century Russia. Yeah. We have. Uh, emperors who have accidents, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: terrible, <laughs> right? terrible, unfortunate accidents, cutting off yeah. their head while combing their hair, or being stabbed oh, in the yeah. stomach while shaving. Uh, oh yeah, we'll
1: get in- yeah somehow tragic. managed to hit inkwells right in their head. Yeah,
0: inkwell <laughs> struck in the head with an inkwell. Um, yeah, that's right. Or writing a letter. Uh, the-, <laughs> the but here's the thing: Kutasov is able to demonstrate loyalty to the people who assassinated the last person he was loyal to. And that's what, it's required to be a good courtier. You have to be able to do that, as well as survive all the other nobles.
1: Yes, and and this is where I think, I I find the most problematic part of his, maybe, character or, or, or life, is that he's very... Adaptable. Um, <laughs> well, is that the word? <laughs> I was only with conniving, but
0: <laughs> morally flexible. <laughs>
1: morally, morally flexible, and the contemporaries knew that, and and I think they all lambasted him for being that morally flexible. Uh, they also looked at him as a psychophant. They looked at him as a person who was keen on ingratiating himself to those who were in power, and I think the most uncomfortable to me as a biographer of his moment when was when he returns from Ottoman Empire mm. and he is I mean he indulged himself there and he seen this you know quotation again oriental life and he loved it uh, and 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 when he came back he prided kind of uh, prided himself on being the master of coffee making <laughs> and what he did and to the great kind of scandal was uh, he would go to the house of most recent lover of Empress Catherine, this young stud by the name of, uh, Pla- uh, of Platon Zubov, who had the penchant of coming out naked uh, to, to greet the visitors uh, <laughs> in the morning, and Kutuzov would be there uh, with a coffee mug, uh, or actually a coffee maker, would brew him a fresh coffee and serve him in the bed. And to me, that's this image of this this brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. A war veteran, a war hero, standing there this psychophantly, sy- right, yeah. meekly and waiting for this guy to get up and serving him coffee, that's really rubbed me the wrong way. And I think I try to emphasize that moral flexibility that Kutuzov had. And another thing, as you said, when Emperor Paul was assassinated, mm-hmm. Kutuzov was very close advisor to him. And something that uh, many Russian historians were keen on not emphasizing at all. In fact, in the Soviet historiography, Kutuzov is that oppressed, persecuted national hero whom Paul, with his Prusophilia, wanted to destroy. And that is it's completely different from what you see in the historical record. If nothing else, Paul allowed Kutuzov to come and use his personal library so they can read same books and discuss books. <laughs> usually books of history. Kutuzov, I've checked the journals, or the court journals, which record uh, uh, record who came, how often, and who attended these private dinners that Paul uh, hosted. And Kutuzov is a daily visitor there. Uh, and yet, when Paul is assassinated, his son um, chooses um, Kutuzov as the governor of St. Petersburg, one of the most important positions in the empire, especially in the wake of the assassination of, of the of of, of of the sovereign head, and Kutuzov kind of switches his loyalties, um, and 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 uh, this is uh, this is a common thread I think to his to his life, uh, this eagerness to survive to navigate the court politics. He's good at it. Um, one of the contemporaries described him. I uh, have a wonderful kind of passage in the memoirs that he says. Kutuzov was, uh, you know, if if he didn't like somebody, he was he would turn himself into a woodworm and slowly kind of s- destroy the wood from within, and, and and you know like like a termite, like a woodworm that you can you don't see on the surface, but it's uh, surreptitiously kind of dis- is undermining the edifice. That what that was what Kutuzov did in, in the court politics. Um, and to me, it was a—I think—the most challenging part of of dealing with his character. There are a lot of elements of, in to his personality that I like, mm-hmm. but then those parts that are very hard to accept. But but that's complexity of historical process, right? The, the complexity of human beings. Yeah.
0: Um, so he he manages to stay, you know, atop the greasy pole, uh, and <laughs> he is at Austerlitz. Um, One thing, I I don't know if people say this anymore, but I guess the idea was, I mean, you can't say this given the success of Suvorov against the French in 1799. Obviously the Russian army was not some sort of backward army that had um, thought it was really good because it was beating Turks. First of all, the Turks were really good. And, uh, and Austerlitz is not a failure. Well, it's not a failure of, of of the Russian army as the Russian army so much. So, but briefly, um, what did what did Kutuzov learn from being beaten by Napoleon?
1: Uh, that he was not beaten. <laughs> <laughs> For the rest of his life, that's the that's the thing he always uh, kind of stressed that I was not beaten there. No,
0: I, and uh, that, that's going to strike, you know, people. One thing we know about Austerlitz, it's supposedly, <laughs> I, don't, I know nothing really about it except uh, people fall into a lake um, and it's a big victory for Napoleon. So how did Kutuzov get away with saying that he was not beaten by uh, Austerlitz? It was the, Aust- because, the Austrians' uh, fault, I guess.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, there were a lot of Russians who blamed uh, Austrians. Um, but in, in uh case, he was right in that if he had been listened to, mm-hmm. and he's been very consistent in this. In fact, you can compare what he was saying in 1805 to what he did in 1812. If he, would be, if he had listened, been listened to in 1805, Napoleon would have been defeated. I have no doubt in this. He would have been defeated, and so. history of Europe would have been so. very, very How different. So. How so?
0: How, that's, a, that's, a, that's a heck of a claim.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and the reason I'm arguing is this. Um, Kutuzov, In uh, so we know that he leads the Russian army to uh, border of Bavaria. He arrives late. Napoleon destroys the Austrian army at Ulm. Uh, Kutuzov, then very successful at evading Napoleon's enveloping maneuvers, uh, actually defeats the French at Krems and makes safely makes his way to the great fortress of Olmütz so his immediate task of is surviving napoleon's onslaught and keeping the army safe is, is accomplished but then what happens is emperor alexander arrives with the posse of young hotheads and they look at the in the situation and they argue that napoleon is weak there is that famous incident with uh, one of uh, Alexander's uh, ADCs right Peter Dolgorukov who goes to meet Napoleon and Napoleon kind of plays him like a flute pretends to be weak pretends that his army is dis- in disarray pretends to be kind of fearful of the allies and Dolgorukov comes back and has the conversation with Alexander and Alexander is quibbling there and Kutuzov actually tells him don't we should not be attacking and Dolgorukov interjects himself and says, well, if we don't attack, we're going to lose our honor. And Alexander responds, well, then it's better for us to die. Um, Not not again, not the sound strategic consideration to to base your campaign on. (laughs) What Kutuzov was offering is this, is he looked at the situation and he argued that Napoleon's army suffers strategic attrition, that it is hundreds of miles from its borders, from French borders, that it doesn't have sufficient supplies to survive. And that time is as important in the war than actually winning battle. He pointed out that there are some 90,000 Austrian troops moving up from Italy. They are on Hungarian plains in in November, and that they needed another three weeks to join them. So Kutuzov was saying, why don't we wait for them? He also points out that there are two Russian armies in the north uh, on, on, on the Prussian borders that... Uh, would be joining the Russian force, and he points out that uh, if we wait, we might have a better chance of convincing Prussians to break their neutrality and join the coalition with an army of well over 150, maybe as high as 180,000 men. And now Kutuzov uh, knows only kind of hearsay; he doesn't have a hands-on knowledge of it, but. It was well known that French economy was teetering on the verge. Actually, in, in the fall of 1805, their banking houses, and including the Bank of France, that is, uh, uh, is on is close to bankruptcy. And it is we know in hindsight that it is the victory at Austerlitz that saves uh, French banking sector and buying by implication the the rest of the economy. Mm. So what Kutuzov argues consistently in November is this that we need to, to retreat further, if need be. We need to wait for the reinforcements. We need to kind of s- uh, starve Napoleon and then counterattack. And instead of listening to him, Alex uh, insists on immediate counteroffensive and finds himself on the field of Austerlitz on December 2nd. Kutuzov, right before the battle, okay, twice goes and warns Alex, in the stark terms that they will be defeated that we are not ready for this battle he do, the latest he does is three hours before the start of the battle he goes and tries to warn Alex that we still have a time not to fight and or each time he's overruled in fact in one of the uh, meetings Alex questions Kutuzov's manhood kinda, you know what he, he fam- you know kinda, he has this famous pa- uh, statement when he says uh you know, you spend your life fighting Turks, and now that you're facing French, you're not as brave anymore, aren't you? And Kudel finds this kind of humiliating, right, insulting, really, for this upstart young guy who's never served in, in the army, who's never been into the battlefield, to question his credentials, to question his courage. A guy with right two headphones <laughs> that are very hard to miss. Yeah. Um, and so that's why. When we have that council of war that, Kutuz, uh, that Tolstoy describes so, um, so brilliantly in his book, uh, Kutuzov essentially gives up on it. He knows that no matter what he does, mm-hmm. this battle will be fought. So he just <laughs> leans back in the armchair and, and dozes off. Yeah.
0: So <coughs> in 1812, we, very briefly, he yes. has the opportunity to fight the campaign that he wanted to fight uh, the result is Borodino, which is, you know, a catastrophic draw, I guess, for somebody.
1: Um, <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and then, find ultimately the burning of Moscow, retreat from Moscow. Um, how much of that is is this Kutuzov what he wanted all the time? Is this?
1: Yes, I think so. And and there is a a profound a really important factor that is. Makes eighteen twelve different from eighteen oh five, and that is Kutuzov is alone in charge of the army. Yeah. There is no emperor breathing down his neck yeah. with the army, and that he's free to to do what he wants to do. Now he does face resistance from the officers. There is a conspiracy of generals, but he he's experienced in the court politics, uh, as we've talked, to negate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, Borodino. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm taking kind of maybe a new uh, or shedding a new light on it by saying that, to me, Borodino is the is the political battle that Kutuzov fights. It's not the battle in which he necessarily hopes to defeat Napoleon. He knows it will be hard, if if possible at all. And I see. The way he deploys the army, the, the way he focuses on digging in, the way he builds his fortifications in on the right flank, the big redoubt in the middle, the redoubts on the left, the fact that he talks about uh, that this is a battle where the French will break their teeth uh, on us, right? What he wants, effectively, is, is to create a battle of attrition mm-hmm. where the Russian army is, on, is, is dug in, the French will keep coming, and the Russians will keep kind of killing them. And then at the end of it, uh, Kutuzov, if, if he wins, that's great, but that, I don't think that's the necessarily the, the ultimate goal. What he wants is, is famously when he says he wants to outsmart Napoleon. Uh, and, and for that, he needs to rally the army, he needs to rally the government, he needs to rally the society, which has been really demoralized by the fact that Two months into the war, Napoleon is out uh, is is approaching Moscow. That the Russians are not doing as well in in these big this, uh, uh, battles with Napoleon, and Borodino, even though it's a draw, as you said, it's a it's a pyrrhic battle, but Kutuzov sells it right away as a great victory, mm-hmm. and he's a in that he's a very skilled propagandist. A, you know, he's very good at at, at selling things, uh, and and and. For the, the fact that the Russian army is not defeated, that's that's the key, right? It still retains its organization, its structure, it, it organizes a, an orderly retreat. And yes, right, Napoleon claims victory because he controlled the battlefield, but Kutuzov argues that we achieved our goal. We showed that we can stand shoulder to shoulder, right, eye to eye with this massive force. The the big decision that he really makes, the where I, I see him as a strategist where I think he outsmarts Napoleon is his decision to give up Moscow. Mm -hmm. And in his conversation, in his letters, Kutuzov mentions that he studied Napoleon. And I love that part of him that he kind of followed the trajectory of Napoleon. He read how Napoleon fought, how he made decisions, you know what made him take and I think he's trying here to get into psyche of Napoleon, and and, and again here the, the, you know, there's the tidbits in the, Kutuzov's conversation that gives us the glimpse of it, and one of the things that he concludes is that Napoleon, because he is military like uh, you know commander in chief, but also head of state, will have to find a political solution to this war. It's not a war that he simply can defeat easily the Russians and 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 win, and Kutuzov knows that that political solution will be denied to, uh, to Napoleon because neither Alexander or anyone around him really is interested in negotiations. And so the surrender of Moscow, to me, is a very s- political move because Kutuzov compares Napoleon to a torrent, a massive mountainous mudslide that comes slashing or you know, destroying everything on its way. And he knows that conventional way, in you know, a battlefield, he will not be able to discontain it. And he wants Moscow to be, as he says, a, a, a sponge that will soak in this torrent and keep it inside and destroy it. And the reason he knows this will work is because Napoleon wants a political solution to the war. He thinks that Moscow, this great symbol of Russian might, political glory, right, historical symbol, will force Russians to negotiate. And Kutuzov banks on that, that Upon capturing Moscow, Napoleon will not be pursuing the army. That they will give Kutuzov the chance to rebuild his army. He will give him time, Mm -hmm. like in 1805. And it it works out perfectly. In fact, what I love is that later on, just a couple of months later, uh, Kutuzov is talking to a captured uh, French officer and he tells him, I was actually surprised how easily Napoleon fell for it. (laughs) And that... Uh, he says, "I was I was surprised how every trick I tried against him worked."
0: So Kutuzov then does something strategically very clever for his legacy. He dies, he, he dies <laughs>
1: early on, right early on. He dies <laughs>
0: after after Napoleon's after the destruction of the Grand Army, right? Yes, yeah. um, and he then becomes this. It's really I, I find those that chapter on his legacy to be one of the most interesting ones, along with the that the one that you uh, like so much about um, about the fighting the Turks. Um, it's really quite extraordinary the way that he has been a he's like a, a molecule that can change structure uh, as as when people whenever people touch it. So there was a one kind of Kutuzov, and then there's Tolstoy's Kutuzov. But then Mm -hmm. the Soviet Kutuzov is, you know, who is kind of a Soviet. I mean, but then there's the then there's the Great Patriotic War Kutuzov, which Mm -hmm. is a kind of a different Soviet Kutuzov. Mm -hmm. And then there's the late Soviet Kutuzov. And I'm sure I don't know, but I'm sure there's been a Putin Kutuzov. Um, And it's really interesting to see the way that russia expresses its concerns particularly about not just the french invasions but about the west uh and invasions from the west and sort of the the sort of the heart of the nation how that's expressed through the changing image of kutuzov
1: you're absolutely right in fact you know Today is September fifteenth. Well, yesterday was the uh, anniversary of the fall of Moscow. To Nura, mm-hmm. And, of course, the week ago that, was the was, anniversary. This is
0: planned, of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the week ago was the anniversary of Borodino.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, Borodino, these, each year, Borodino anniversary is, is marked with, with, uh, uh, with reenactments or some festivities or some events in, in Russia. And a friend of mine sent me a, a photo, which I found particularly interesting. Uh, uh, it, it's a big poster. It's a banner, mm-hmm. massive banner, that shows Kutuzov leading this kind of new generation of both uh, uh, Napoleonic Nepo- uh, leaders and Bagrationis, for example, there, but also this new generation of Russian leaders, including the the, uh, 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 the kind of the rebel leaders from Donbas region in Ukraine. Hmm. And here, effectively you see this reinvention of Kutuzov yet again as this glorious vision of the man who defeated the West, mm-hmm. the man who led us to victory, and now he will lead us again, um, and uh, and that goes to the heart of of the process of historical uh, historical myth making. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kutuzov is 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 a good example of it. Right? We are familiar with Napoleonic legend, and less familiar with the Kutuzovian myth that I explore in in this book, uh, which the Russian and Soviet historians. Uh, contributed so uh, uh, so greatly um, over the course of 20th century. And, and partly it is because the, the historians were, well, not partly actually, mostly it's because historians were forced to, uh, to trot a line that the government set for them. Mm-hmm. So when in World War II, as you said, when during World War II, Stalin argued that the Soviet retreat in front of Wehrmacht all the way to the outskirts of Moscow was not forced, was not because they were losing, but, be, but because it was part of the larger deliberate strategy which he borrowed from Kutuzov, well, if you're a historian, you have to trot that line. Yeah. And, and they have to find find right, the historical facts to fit this imaginary uh, vision of history. And same applies in post-World War II period when Kutuzov effectively becomes larger than life. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all the quirks of his character, everything that makes him such a complex being were actually whitewashed. Um, you know, all his womanizing was forgotten. Uh, all his core politics was ignored. In fact, in, in, instead, he turned into this national institution, a man who uh, did nothing wrong. And if, if there is something, if something went wrong, then it's somebody else's pro, You know. Uh, uh, Responsibility—the czars, or, or Austrians, or, or people around who didn't understand him—and and there was this kind of convenient scapegoat, foreigners. That every time something went wrong, it would be the foreign officers who that screwed Kutuzov. That uh, damn Klauswitz.
0: That's what happened.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I should
0: say. I mean, for people who don't realize, uh, none other than uh, von Klauswitz uh, left, defected from Prussia, uh, and ended up on Kutuzov's Kutuzov staff which is...
1: Exactly, uh, and it, he had a first-hand knowledge, and I think many of the things that could, uh, Clausewitz writes later on, especially on the uh, interconnectedness of politics and war, mm-hmm. w- uh, are things that Kutuzov believed in, yes. Kutuzov practiced, especially in 1812, uh, when Clausewitz would have been able to observe it.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, the book is uh, Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace, Um, Alex, thanks once again for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation.
0: And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape
1: the way we think about the present.